Acts chapter 11. And we looked briefly, well not briefly, it was quite long last week, but we looked at the church at Antioch and we've kind of broken down the church at Antioch into four different characteristics that we're going to study over the next few weeks. And last week we looked at this church as a model church for outreach and evangelism. You're going to see a little bit more of that today, how the church at Antioch, they, Antioch, they reached out to everyone. Uh, they, they just had a burden uh, to reach out to people who are different from them, to kind of step outside of their comfort zones. And so very intentional about reaching out and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with their community and with the people that were around them. Today, we're going to look at a different aspect of the church at Antioch. We're going to see that the church at Antioch was also a model church for intentional discipleship. For intentional discipleship. And so evangelism is the, is the obedience of the believer to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with people, uh, allowing them to come into a relationship and introducing them to a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the initial um, stepping into faith and becoming a member of the church is based upon our profession of faith. And that's just the beginning of the Christian life and the Christian journey. That's when the work really begins. It's kind of like getting married, right? The marriage ceremony and saying I do and all that stuff is wonderful. It's, a, it's a, something to be celebrated, but a wedding does not make a marriage, right? Because that's just the beginning. Now you have a lot of work to do to keep that marriage strong. And it's the same thing as a Christian in our Christian faith, initiating relationship with Jesus Christ, coming to faith in Jesus is just the beginning. Now what do we do with believers? And that's what the church at Antioch shows us this morning is being a model church for intentional discipleship. So what I want to do, I want to read verses uh, from Acts chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 25 through 30 this morning, and we're going to jump right in together. Acts chapter 11, verse 25. It says this, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, don't, don't overlook that. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Verse 27, and in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. And so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So today I want to teach you about discipleship. What does the Bible say? More specifically, what does the church at Antioch show us about how important it is for every church to have an intentional mindset for discipleship within the church? What is a disciple? Well, a disciple can be defined in very simplistic terms. A disciple can be defined as a learner, uh, a learner follower. So, so a student is another great uh, word for disciple. It's a student who is putting himself under the authority and the teaching of a master teacher. So you see that in, in all kind of um, in different situations and circumstances of life. You can be a disciple. So it doesn't always necessarily just apply to church. But today, obviously, we're looking at it from a spiritual standpoint, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus said it this way. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. That's one of the best definitions right there, I think, that we see from Jesus about discipleship. Now, if you caught this here in, in the passage, it was in Antioch 
that the believers were first called what? Christians. The word Christian actually is only used, I think, three times in the New Testament. It's used twice in the book of Acts, and then Peter refers to it as well, I think, in 1 Peter chapter 4. So it's not, it's not used overwhelmingly. A lot of times the believers were called disciples or followers and those kind of things. But here we see that the, the church was first called Christians. Now, that's significant on many levels. Let me remind you a little bit about the, the city of Antioch. It was a large city, about the size of Memphis, half a million to maybe three-quarters of a million people. Uh, it was characterized as a cosmopolitan city that a lot of commerce went through Antioch, where it was positioned geographically. It, it had a lot of intersecting uh, main highways right there near on the Mediterranean Sea, so they had a lot of commerce in and out of the city. Kind of makes me think about Memphis. What, what's the big hub that we have here in Memphis? FedEx, right? We're, we're an intersecting city here in the United States of America. A lot of commerce coming in and out. It was a city of entertainment and tourism. Makes you think a little bit like Bill Street downtown. It was, a, it was a city that was infatuated with sports. Wow. Think about our culture today, right? Infatuated with, with sports and, and those kind of things, entertainment. But more than anything, this is something you need to know about Antioch. More than anything else, it was known for its sexual immorality. They had massive... Um, uh, temples all around the city where they practice cult prostitution. Parents, I'll let you explain that to your kids later. And there was a pursuit of pleasure that was unmatched in anywhere else really in the Roman world in a lot of respects. And so it kind of got to the point to where Antioch became automatically associated with any type of pleasure that you wanted. In other words, it, it could be day, it could be night, it doesn't matter because the city was bustling day and night and it was offering the, any pleasure, whatever pleasure that man desired, he could find it if he went to Antioch. In other words, he didn't have to look very hard to go have or to go find a good time. And it's, it's, it's really not that much different here in in. In the city of Memphis, I mean, there's plenty of places you could go right now if you wanted to, if you wanted to go get into some trouble and, and indulge in your sinful desires and all those things. And so we see so many um, characteristics about the city of Antioch that's similar to what I see right here in Memphis, which is very interesting. I didn't plan it that way, but when we started kind of looking at these two, uh, this church in Antioch compared to where we are today, it really are some, some very clear similarities. But this is what's most significant, I think, about the church being called Christian in Antioch for the very first time. You see, believers, the disciples of Christ, the church, they didn't label themselves as Christians. They weren't the ones who came up with this name to identify themselves. It was actually the, the godless people of Antioch. It was the people around them who undoubtedly observed this group of people for long enough to say, you know what, there's something different. There was so much of a contrast with the church in Antioch as opposed to the rest of the culture around them where they got this nickname. Now, many people would say that it was presumably a, a nickname of ridicule. They were kind of, oh, look at those Christians over there, right? I mean, they, so they, they did maybe intentionally um, call them Christians as a, as a means of ridicule or as a byword or something like that. But I want you to think about the legacy that the church at Antioch left by being identified by the culture around them as Christians. You see, the, the culture, the people of Antioch noticed this contrast. They noticed that there was something different. In other words, whether they started out calling them Christians as a means of ridicule or not, it doesn't matter. The, people, the church at Antioch should have worn that label proudly, Amen. just like we should today. In other words, if anybody's ever turned to you and said, well, you're just nothing more than a fundamental Bible-believing Jesus freak, 
What do you say? Thank you. Thank you. That's the best compliment that you could give me, right? I mean, and so, but that, that's what we hear and what we feel many times in, in our culture, and especially when you get in other pockets around the world where, where the church is not as strong and you get these uh, more of a liberal mindset, I guess I could use that word, and, and those kind of terms are used toward people like us, right? Fundamental, Bible-beaten, Jesus freaks, outdated, anti-progressive, whatever they want to say. But in other words, I want us to understand today that there's nothing wrong with that because if people are labeling you in that way, it's something that we can be proud of. Because it means that we're actually doing something right. It means that they actually see that we're trying to fulfill and live the life uh, that Jesus Christ has called and saved us to live. So let's talk a little bit now about Christian discipleship. I'm going to give you a couple of key points, and then we're going to look at some very practical ways that I believe we can make sure discipleship is being intentional in your life and in our life and in the church. Okay, so number one, Christian discipleship isn't merely a part of your life. Very important. It is your life. Here in this culture and today, we compartmentalize everything. You kind of have your family life here. You have your social life here. You have your, your hobbies and your entertainment here. You have your work over here. You have your church over here. And we compartmentalize these things. That's not what being a Christian and being a disciple of Jesus Christ is about. It's not just part. It's not just one of the compartments of your life. It should define your life. As a Christian, discipleship is an identity. It is a lifestyle. Amen. Being a Christian defines who we are above everything else because our identity, which is in Christ, we are, we are saying this, that Jesus, you determine the course of our life. The priorities of our, of our life are ordered by Jesus Christ. In other words, we are followers of Jesus first. Everything else falls in behind that. Your life is Christ Jesus and everything else flows from that relationship, and that goes above your job, your education, your hobbies, your net worth, and even your own family. Your commitment and your dedication to the Lord Jesus Christ should take priority over even your relationships that you have with your family because it goes without saying, if you don't have a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ, then how are you going to be a good husband, father, brother, sister, or whatever it may be? That's the primary relationship through which everything else flows. How many of you remember an artist, a singer by the name of Mark Cohn. He wrote the song, Walking in Memphis. I love that song. Uh, there's a line in that song, though, that kind of caught my attention. Is he's talking about going down to the Hollywood down in the Mississippi Delta in Robinsonville. And he sets the scene where he's hearing the lady there just playing the piano. And she says, boy, are you a Christian child? And what did he say? Ma'am, I am tonight. Right? That's not, that's not the way it works, though. We don't just think to pick and choose, oh, today I want to be a Christian, but tomorrow I may be a hellion or a heathen. That's not the way that it works. You see, discipleship is defined by our identity in Christ. It is a lifestyle of Jesus Christ, following Jesus Christ. And that's why it's so significant that we see the, 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 the believers in Antioch were called Christians for the very first time. One author said it this way. It says they were presumably, presumably called Christian, at least in part, because they were difficult to categorize. I like that. They weren't necessarily a Jewish church, even though there were Jews in the church. They weren't necessarily a Gentile church, even though there were Gentiles in the church. They were a Jesus church. Amen. What a wonderful definition. And, you know, they, didn't, they didn't have a, a category. They, they couldn't label them. So they said, well, you know what? We can't label them this. We can't label them that. Let's just call them Christians because they all identify with who? With Jesus Christ. 
And so that is so significant when we look at what brings us all together. And this is what's so awesome. When I look out among you and I look out every Sunday, I see people from so many different walks of life, different diverse backgrounds, different life experiences. You were raised, some of you, in all kind of different ways by different people in different places at different times. You've got so, many, so much diversity here in the life of the church and not something that we celebrate. But what's the one thing, the one person, I should say, that brings us all together? It's Jesus Christ. It always should be and it always must be Jesus Christ, who is the one that brings us out, brings us all together. The unity that we have is in Jesus Christ. So Christian, let's talk about that word just real quick. Christian literally means to be like Christ, or it could mean a little Christ. Okay, let's think about that for just a second. How, how profound it is to think that essential to becoming a Christian is adopting a lifestyle that is like Christ. What's that mean? It means we, we, we begin this process of learning. Remember, a disciple is a student, a learner, a follower. But you're starting this process where you begin to learn how to think like Jesus. How to what? Speak like Jesus. How to act like Jesus. How to believe and behave like Jesus. Uh, you know, the, the bracelets that came out years ago with the WWJD on it, you know. That's kind of a reminder of, okay, in, in every given situation, circumstance, what would Jesus do? That's kind of what it means to be a disciple. And that's what's so significant about the church at Antioch is that instead of being conformed to the culture, let me tell you something, guys. You know what one of the dangers of 20th, 21st century uh, church is, right? Is that the church is beginning to look more and more like the, the culture, the world around us. Okay, we're in the world, but we're not to be of the world. But you begin to see parts of the world creep into the church to where you really, there's many things that you can't differentiate between the world and the church. That's not what was happening at Antioch. At Antioch, they're in a godless culture, a pleasure-seeking culture, but they stood out in contrast simply because they were so in love with Jesus Christ and so committed to following Jesus Christ. They said, we want to be conformed not to the culture around us. We want to be conformed to the image of our blessed Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. That's really, at the bottom, at the, at the end of the day, that's really what a disciple, the goal of a disciple is, is to be conformed, to begin to look like Jesus Christ. I wrote this, this quote uh, actually yesterday. I just want to read it because I, I think it, it I, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking about how can I really just encapsulate Everything I'm trying to say about discipleship, and I'm just going to read it to you real quickly because I think this may help you. Okay, you ready? Discipleship is a lifetime, that's the key word, lifetime, of training in the battle in good versus evil. It is a lifetime of learning the unsearchable, um, the unsearchable riches of God in his nature. It is a lifetime of living in relationship with Jesus Christ. Discipleship is a lifetime of walking in step with the Holy Spirit of God. Discipleship is a lifetime of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and into his image. Discipleship is a lifetime of serving others for the glory of Jesus Christ. It is a lifetime of keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus and running the race of faith with unwavering faith, the race of life with unwavering faith. It's a lifetime of looking ahead to the glorious coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to the eternal treasures of God. It is a lifetime of investing in the next generation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is discipleship. It is a lifetime of becoming like Jesus Christ. Notice that the key word there is 
It's a lifetime. It doesn't happen overnight, right? So let's talk about this. Number two, the body of Christ. So now that we've kind of defined discipleship, now let's talk about, well, what's the best context for discipleship? The body of Christ, the church, provides the most effective context for intentional discipleship. Now, it doesn't mean that the church is the only place that you can grow as a disciple. It just means it's the best place that you should grow as a disciple. I've talked to many, most of the time it's some of us hard-headed men, and I love to hunt. I love to get out in the woods and hunt, and I've come across men through different respective ministries. I'm just going to pick on hunters today, okay, since I'm a hunter and I love to get out in the woods. But I've talked to men before who weren't in church, and they weren't committed to a church, but they say, hey, I... I'm a Christian, and I believe in God, and, and I don't doubt that whatsoever. But this is something, I'm, maybe some of you have heard this. You know what? I don't really need a church. All I need is to be up in a deer stand where it's nice and quiet. I can even read my Bible. I can spend time with God. And that's all I really need It's just to have that time with God. I don't need a church. I don't have to go to church to, to experience God. I don't disagree with that. You don't have to go to church to experience God. The church is not the only Context where we are growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ and disciples, but it is and should be the primary context of where we experience the relationship with Jesus Christ and grow in discipleship. You see, the reason is, is that if you're sitting alone and you isolate yourself, there's one thing that's severely missing when it comes to growing as a Christian. You know what it is? Other people. You see, other people. God did not call any man to live on an island. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. How many of you have watched the old Lone Ranger show, right? He did have Tonto with him, but he was basically on his own out there, right? There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. We're not called to live this life all out on our own in isolation to where we can just kind of think that we're going to grow spiritually. You're never going to grow spiritually on your own in the way that you're going to grow around other people. Why is that? Well, because, number one, the church is God's idea. I didn't come up with the church. The church was born out of, the, out of the, the heart and the mind of God. It's God's design. It's his plan and the, for the most effective growth in the believers. It's like a baby who's growing up. A baby has to grow up in a family. A baby's going to grow up in a much more healthy and productive way if the baby is around other people and being nourished and fed and challenged. You see, discipleship is rooted in relationships, and I can't overstate that today. Discipleship, let me say it again, is rooted in relationship, first in your relationship to God, we know that, but also in relationship to others. You see, if you think about it, how else are we ever going to learn to become like Jesus Christ unless we're living life in community with other people? There's no other way. There's no other way to learn how to forgive somebody that's hurt you unless you're living in relationship and community with other people. There's no other way to learn how to be submissive how to be humble if you're just isolated and living your life on your own. Guys, and that's why I'm so thankful for you. I'm thankful that you're here. I'm thankful that you value your church. I'm thankful that you understand that there is a great value, a great benefit of being a believer who's in community with other believers and that you are willing to submit yourself to the design that God gave us for discipleship, which is primarily his church. 
That's what this morning is really all about. And every morning as we come together and study the word of God together in fellowship with one another. So let me give you four quick keys, okay? Four quick keys and we're going to move on. So that's kind of the, the, the foundation. We told you what discipleship is. Now we told you the church is God's primary instrument so that we can grow in discipleship. Now how does that work? Well, let me give you a couple. Number one, meeting together faithfully and consistently. Look at what it says about Paul and Barnabas. You see, first, uh, man, Barnabas is just an awesome guy. I wish we could take more time to do a character study. On, but everybody needs a Barnabas in their life. His name means son of encouragement. Every time he shows up, he's just this guy with just this positive outlook on life. He's encouraging the saints. He's, he's, he's building up the church. And you know what? He comes to Antioch. The church hears about what's happening. There's Gentiles getting saved. The church in Jerusalem says, man, we need to go check this out. We trust Barnabas. He's, he's a faithful man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. They send Barnabas to Antioch. He gets there. He's encouraged. He's overwhelmed by the grace of God. He sees all these wonderful things that God's doing through the life of the church there at Antioch. But he knows at that point, it's like, man, this is a unique situation. They're not really a Jewish church. They're not really a Gentile church. There's all this diversity mixed in together. There's going to be some problems. It's going to get messy. There's going to be some, some headbutting, I'm sure. He said, I got to go find somebody that can help us out. And who, who better than Saul of Tarsus? A, a devout Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, zealous for the law, raised in the Jewish faith, uh, just a, a brilliant man, but also... Barnabas remembered that God had called Saul of Tarsus for a unique and a special calling. Does anybody remember what it was? He says, you're going to take the gospel where? To the Gentiles. Saul didn't choose that calling. It was God's calling for him. So Barnabas is remembering this. Barnabas probably hasn't seen Saul in close to 10 years at this point. Okay, remember, when we read the book of Acts, it sounds like everything's just happening successively, just like one after another. No, this has been a great time has passed. Saul has been in Tarsus. And Barnabas says, I got to go find Saul because he's the man. He's the right man for the job to make sure that we know how to really pour into and invest with these people here at Antioch, with the church at Antioch. And so we see how Barnabas is intentional about going to find Saul of Tarsus. He brings Saul back to Antioch, and it says for an entire year, for one whole year, look at what it says there in verse 25. It says, in verse 26, when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year, look at the two things. They what? They met with the church and what? And taught. Okay? So there you go. We talk about discipleship. You can't really have discipleship unless you meet together. Again, it goes back to relationship with other people. So meeting together faithfully and consistently is so critical when it comes to discipleship. We depend on each other. We learn to draw strength from one another. Like that's Barnabas, the son of encouragement. We encourage each other. We bear each other's burdens. We learn to speak the truth to each other when we need it the most. We learn to be patient with each other. All of those things that I talked about before. That's what happens in the life of the church. In the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews gives us a very good passage of Scripture to remind us of how important it is that we just meet together consistently and faithfully. Okay? Let me tell you something, guys. When I stand here, or when your Sunday school teacher sees you on Sunday morning, you know how much that encourages us? It encourages us to know that you've made it a point to be here, that you just made an effort to come when there's so many other things that you could be doing this morning, and you're here. You're faithfully, consistently meeting here 
week after week after week after week. Guys, that is a tremendous encouragement. Listen to what the book of Hebrews says in chapter 10. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We're going to get to that in just a second about holding fast to our confession of faith, the sound doctrines and teachings of the church. For he, for he who promised is faithful. Now listen to verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How? Verse 25. By not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Did you catch that? You see how we stir up each other? How we encourage each other? How we, how we motivate one another toward love and good works? This is, how, this is one way that you do it. Just show up. Just be here. Just be committed. Be faithful in your attendance, where it be to Sunday school, whether it be to Wednesday night Bible studies, Sunday night Bible studies, here on Sunday morning, guys. Just meeting together is a critical part of discipleship. Do not overlook or underestimate that fact. Let me give you a couple of more quick things about that, and we've got to move on. Discipleship takes time. It's hard work. And this is most important. Listen to me. It's two ways. Discipleship is not a one-way street, guys. It's a what? It's a two-way street. What do you mean by that? We, we as the church, leaders of the church, our responsibility is to offer opportunities for you to grow in your faith. I'm going to tell you something, guys. Here at Christ Church and most churches, there's not a shortage of opportunity, is there? You see, our, our job is to provide a way. Here's an opportunity. Here's a Bible study. Here's a prayer group. Uh, here's a, a membership class. Here's our Sunday morning worship. Here's our Wednesday night. All these different ways and opportunities for you to be involved, for you to serve. That's what we offer you as a church. Guess what? It's your responsibility to now respond to that. Discipleship in two ways. I can't make you do anything. Leadership in churches, Sunday school teachers and elders, we can't make you grow in your faith. It's got to be something that you have got to be willing to do. That's why discipleship takes time. We use that word lifelong journey. It's a lifetime commitment. It is a two-way street. Both people have to be involved in discipleship. It can't just be a one-way street. And let me tell you something. Discipleship is hard. It's hard. It's messy. It takes time. Matt Arnold, if y'all remember, with Ethnos 360, he and his wife, Star, are missionaries, and we support their organization. One thing he said, I think I've shared this before. i got to share it again. We were talking about how evangelism is going. There's ways and opportunities for the gospel to get all over the world. But evangelism can be a very quick process. It can. Somebody can hear the gospel for the very first time, and they can stop right there and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It happens just, just like that. But like I said before, that's just the beginning. Now the hard work takes place. You see, discipleship is the hard part. It's the hard work. It's getting dirty and getting your hands dirty and being committed to the Lord and committed to one another. And that's why discipleship can be so very difficult. But we need to make sure that we're meeting together faithfully and consistently. Number two, teaching and learning the commandments of Jesus Christ and the essential doctrines of Scripture. So, they, so when Barnabas and Saul came to Antioch, they met and they taught. They met and they taught. The reason that they met together consistently is so that they could teach them the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the Great Commission? We, we, we like the part, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, 
baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but we forget off in the next part. Does anybody know what it says? Teaching them, teaching them everything that I have commanded you, and then I will be with, lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. See, we forget that part of the Great Commission, don't we? That inherent in discipleship is the teaching of the Word of God, teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and teaching the commandments of the Word of God. Saul and Barnabas were intentional about teaching the believers at Antioch the doctrines of, of faith, the commandments of Jesus Christ. You see, we aren't making disciples of ourselves. I'm not here to make a disciple of Marcus. I would be leading you way astray. I promise you. We're here to make disciples of whom? Of Jesus Christ, right? Sometimes I think we forget that. I'm not here to make a disciple of myself. Teachers, you're not here to make disciples of yourself. We're here to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's why we always go back to the word of God, the commandments of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, because therein lies the heart, the nature, and the purpose, and the will of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're trying to teach people are the commandments and the essential doctrines of the faith. Well, what are some of the essential doctrines? I think it's worth the time. I'm going to share just a couple of them with you. I'm reading from our Christchurch website. If you go to the About page, you can find out what we believe as essential doctrines. I'm just going to briefly go through some of them with you so that you remember, hey, these are the things we can't compromise on. These are the things that we will always uncompromisingly believe. That's the divine creation of man in the universe, the verbal inspiration of the Word of God and its absolute authority. There's one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. The preexistence of the Lord Jesus Christ as God. You see, the, the, the deity of Jesus Christ is an essential doctrine. The fall of man, his moral depravity, meaning that we're sinners and that we need to be born again. The atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. The personality of the Holy Spirit. Justification by faith. Um, we could go on. The eternal punishment of all who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of the body. The Lord Jesus Christ will return. The glorious second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You read through some of those. Those are the essential doctrines of the church. Guys, we need to be familiar with those things. And, and honestly, in today's culture, just like it was at Antioch, those are going to be the things that are under attack. Those are going to be the beliefs that are most vehemently under attack by the godless culture that is around us. And so we have to make sure that we're teaching the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul said. I've got to move on. Paul said this to Timothy in 2 Timothy. He said, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Listen, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Do you see that? There's a transmission of teaching and doctrine that we pass on from generation to generation, from disciple to disciple. It's very, very important that we entrust the words of God with other people so that they can turn around and do what? And teach also. That's discipleship. I'll get to more of that in just a minute. But teaching the word in and of itself, I've said this so many times, I'm going to say again, is not enough. So not only do we teach the commandments of Christ, number three, we put the word of God into practice. Now, I love this. Here in Antioch, look, this church hasn't been around very long, okay? Even though Paul and Barnabas have been with them a year, they're teaching them for a year, there's a need that arises in the church. This, this prophet Agabus, he, he says, look, there's going to be a famine, 
Our church in Judea is going to be in need. The, the mother church there in Jerusalem, they were going to have a tremendous amount of need. It was a significant famine of the day. Look at how the disciples at Antioch responded. They didn't waste any time. They did not hesitate one bit. They said, you know what? We know what the Bible teaches about bearing each other's burdens, so we want to step up and help. See, they, what they had learned about Christ, the teaching of the gospel, the commandments of Christ had penetrated from their head. It even got into their heart so that they wanted to do something with their what? With their hands. They said, we want to contribute. We want to help. We want to put our faith into practice. That's why learning is one side of discipleship, but serving is the other side. Are y'all with me? It's like a coin. Learning's one side. Serving is the other side. Listen to this quote. Knowledge without action leads to arrogance. We can get all the knowledge in the world. All it's going to do is make you more and more arrogant. But action without knowledge leads to ignorance. You see, if we're, if we're doing things for other people, but we don't know why we're doing that, then that's just ignorant. we got to have both of those things. And so we see here in the church that there was a commitment to service. There was a commitment to putting their faith into practice. Ephesians 4, lest you forget, Paul says this to the church. He says, he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for the purpose of this, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. If you want to be a disciple, if you're a committed disciple, it's your responsibility to do the work of the ministry. Our job is to equip you to do that. Remember, it's a two-way street, but you have to take ownership in that and be willing to do the work of the ministry. And here's number four, because i got to wrap this thing up. You've got meeting together faithfully. You've got learning the doctrines, commandments of Jesus Christ. You've got putting the word of God into practice. We see that in the church at Antioch. And then here's another one, spiritual reproduction. And this is, this is a big one. I could very much simplify it this way. Just like God gives many of us an opportunity to have biological children. And then one of the greatest joys that I haven't got to experience yet, but many of you in the room have, is that you've even been able to see your children have children. And from what I understand, grandchildren, you probably love them even more than your children, don't you? And that's, that's what I hear anyway. There's something special about seeing your children have children. It's almost like, oh, yeah, now they get to get a little bit of taste of what I had to deal with for so many years, right? But there's so much joy in having children and then seeing grandchildren, some of you maybe live to see great-grandchildren. God, your posterity, you see the, the generations coming after you, and it's just such great joy and pride that you have in that. But let me ask you this question this morning. Who's your spiritual child? Who is it that you are investing in spiritually? That you could be like Paul who called Timothy his son. It wasn't his biological son. It was his son in the faith. It was his spiritual son. Paul adopted people like Timothy and Silas, and, and, he, and he poured into them Titus, and he invested into these men to the, to the point to where, yes, they were his spiritual children, but I promise you it gave Paul even more joy when, they saw, when he saw his spiritual children investing in the next generation so that Paul could stand back and say, wait a minute, that's my, that's my grandson, that's my granddaughter, that's my great-great-granddaughter, that's my great-great-grandson. You understand? Spiritual reproduction. I believe that we have really um, matured as disciples when we can stand back and say there are people alive today who are second and third generation Christians 
because of what God was able to do in my life where I started. But some of us don't even have any spiritual children. How are you ever going to have spiritual grandchildren and great-grandchildren if you're not investing in someone in the, on the level of spiritual discipleship so that you can pour into them and give them and show them what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ? I'm going to finish this out by giving you some spiritual disciplines, okay? Spiritual disciplines. I want to be as practical as I can be. Discipleship. Inherent in that word is the word discipline. And I've just kind of come to the point in my life, guys, where I'll put it to you this way. I think we can be as disciplined about anything that we really, really want to be disciplined about. Does that make sense? If there's something that you really want, if you want to save up money to buy a new boat or to take a vacation, guess what you're going to be with your money? You're going to be disciplined because that's something that you want. Well, if it, when it comes down to your relationship with Jesus Christ and being a disciple of Jesus Christ, is it something that you really want? Do you really want to grow in your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you really want to be the person that God saved you to be? Do you really want to be continuing to become more like Jesus Christ? Or are you just okay where you are? Because that's going to determine whether or not you're willing to put these disciplines in practice in your life. So let me just, I left some blank lines on your, on your uh, guide if you want to write some of these down. But I think all of them are important. I'm going to share some of them with you real briefly. You've, you've got Bible study. You've got scripture memory. Prayer. Corporate worship, which is what we're doing today. Singing. Taking communion is a spiritual discipline. You've got witnessing and evangelism. Those are very much spiritual disciplines. Serving in the church is a spiritual discipline. And serving people outside of the church Living in Christian community, that's where your small group Bible studies and your, your um, you know, time away from the church where you just spend time with each other are very, very important. There's disciplines of fasting and self-denial. We could, all of us could probably take a step back and deny ourselves some pleasures from time to time for the purpose of fasting. You've got solitude, reflection, and meditation. This is a big one because we're so distracted in our world today. Very few of us take time just to be still. Just to get along with God. That's where, the, that's where the deer hunting comes into play, guys. It's okay to go be in the deer woods and be still and be quiet with the Lord just to have that solitude. But that's not the only thing, right? And then repentance and confession and forgiveness. And guys, there's many, many, many more. But those are just some of the spiritual disciplines that if you really have a desire to grow in your Christ-likeness, guys, these are things that you have to be committed to to put into practice. Now listen, you can't do it on your own. You're never going to be able to do it well by yourself. I'm going to read one quote by Dallas Willard, and I'll ask our praise team to come on up. Praise team, choir, you guys can go ahead and make your way up. Listen to this quote, and I'm going to finish here. Dallas Willard, who's a scholar, a theologian, teacher, this is what he said. He said, a discipline is something we can do that enables us to do what we haven't been able to do on our own direct effort. You get that? Let me say it again. Listen, a discipline is something we can do that enables us to do what we haven't yet been able to do. Okay, pretty simple. But trying is not enough. I like this. He said, don't try, train. Think about this. We're not trying, we're training. You're putting things in practice day after day after day, being committed to a process. It's a training process. He said, don't try, train. Our training is connected us with a power that's much greater than our own. It is the Spirit of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. 
So guys, you're not, on, you're not on your own. You're not trying to do it in your own strength. It is a training process, but the power of God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that is available to you to become the disciple of Jesus Christ that God is calling you to be. Three questions on our application, and we're going we're gonna to sing as we go. Answer these three questions. If you don't have answers to them, I, I encourage you to please find them, okay? Number one, who is intentionally discipling you? Who's that person or that group of people in your life that's poured in? You got to make yourself available, don't you? But who is it? Number two, who are you intentionally pouring into? It's got, you got to have a Paul in your life. You got to have a Timothy in your life. You should have both. You should have people pouring in and you should be pouring in to others. It may just be your children. That's perfectly fine. They need to be discipled too. But you got to answer those two questions. And then number three, if you can't say yes or you can't have an answer to, to either one of those, then what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? So guys, I want to close this in a, in a word of prayer and then we're going to sing Jesus Messiah one of my favorite songs. And uh, I just encourage you, if God is here, uh, he's met with you, we know God is here. If he's met with you, if he's ministered to your heart in any way, any form, uh, shape, form, or fashion, I want you just please to take this time to seek him out, to, to, to come and pray, to seek somebody um, uh, for counseling if that's necessary, okay? I always make myself available after the, after the service. And so if anybody needs to, to talk or counsel after the service, I want to make sure that I'm here as well. Um, so let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for today. And uh, I just praise you, God, that you are who you are, what you've done, and that you give us a way, Lord, to know you, to walk in, with you, and to grow in you, and to become more like you. But Lord, whatever it is that's missing in our life, whatever commitments that we failed to make, I, I hope and pray, Lord Jesus, that you would get us to where we need to be so that we can become the people that you've created us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.